Hello and welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service. I'm Linda Presley and last year I reported on a killer drug, fentanyl. It's made in Mexico and heavily consumed in the United States. And now fentanyl's back in the news. Its tentacles have spread and the opioid crisis is beginning to heavily impact Mexico's own cities too, especially on the border. So to bring you up to speed on the background to this highly addictive narcotic, here, back to back, are those assignment documentaries produced by Tim Mansell and Ulysses Escamilla. The first is from Mexico, the second from the US. I'm Linda Presley, this is Assignment on the BBC World Service. And a warning, some of you might find the stories in this programme upsetting, because it's about a killer drug. I smoked some and that's all I remember is pretty much just smoking and then waking up and a bunch of EMTs around me, emergency medical technicians. We'll call this young woman Susanna. She overdosed on fentanyl, a synthetic opioid developed in the 1960s as a pain reliever and anaesthetic. Now it's killing drug users at an alarming rate. Susanna was lucky. She survived. I felt like I'd come back from the dead. I felt like I had not been breathing for at least maybe a minute, maybe two. It was very scary. It's something that scared me to the point where, I mean, I've seen people overdose. I've unfortunately had to be in the presence of somebody who was dying from an overdose, and it's very traumatic. And I think the only reason I survived or was able to use fentanyl at all was because of my heroin addiction. Susanna had some resistance because she was already a heavy opioid user. But fentanyl is a drug that's 50 times more powerful than heroin. In the year to August 2022, more than 107,000 Americans died of a drug overdose. Two-thirds of those deaths were associated with an opioid like fentanyl. It's shocking. A tiny dose could be enough to end a life. I think fentanyl is a different monster. You could just take one line, one hit, one smoke, one puff and end up dead. Susanna's mum is Mexican, her dad an American. She was brought up in California. Now she's being treated for addiction in Clinica Libre, a drug rehabilitation centre in Mexico. And it's Mexico that's fundamental to the fentanyl story. With its formidable, violent drug trafficking cartels, Mexico's the source of the pills and white powder saturating communities north of the border in the United States. Most of the chemical ingredients used to make fentanyl are imported here by ship from China, India. Our journey starts on Mexico's Pacific coast, in the small state of Colima. It's carnival when we arrive in the seaside town of Manzanillo, population around 160,000. There's a Ferris wheel, roundabouts, stalls, prizes have been given out, and now... A convoy has just pulled up, a large white utility vehicle. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight masked, heavily armed men from the Navy. Other men have just appeared in plain clothes. They've all got weapons. For this tiny town, the security perimeter is quite impressive. That's Ulysses Escamilla, a Mexican journalist and veteran of drug-related stories, and our translator. Soon we see the petite woman in a simple cotton frock whose survival depends on the military men with assault rifles. And here she is getting out of the car, the lead car, the president of the municipality, the mayor here, Griselda Martinez. Manzanillo's mayor lives under round-the-clock armed guard after an assassination attempt. We'll meet her later in the week. But seeing her arrive at the carnival with such a massive show of state security, in and amongst the jolly bunting and prize-giving, is our first indication that everything is not as it seems in this pretty seaside town. And this is why. That's the sound of the port. The source of so much bloodshed and strife in the state of Colima as the cartels battle to control access to incoming merchandise. Manzanillo is Mexico's largest port, the third busiest in all of Latin America. Nearly three and a half million containers from across the globe arrived here last year. 
all sorts of cargo pass through, including the materials used to produce the drug cartel's most lucrative earners, synthetic drugs like fentanyl. And such was the scale of corruption that the government took drastic action and ordered the Navy to take control of all Mexico's seaports, an attempt to stem the tsunami of chemicals arriving illicitly from Asia. So there are boxes and boxes piled up here outside the containers. There's a whole stack of boxes there made in China. That one's been examined. And here are some guys working. They're in masks, great big masks, because presumably if they're examining chemicals, some of the chemicals can be really, really toxic. We're given a comprehensive tour by the naval commandante and some of his captains, all of whom must remain nameless for security reasons. This one particularly grabbed our attention because coming from a port that normally don't export chemicals and the importer is normally someone that don't import these kind of things. It's a Mexican importation company. The team here is going to show us uh, what they're seeing. They have a portable chemical testing instrument. We take a sample from one of the big bags that we have here and we analyse with this equipment. And th will this machine tell you if there's, for example, a chemical in there used to make fentanyl? In the bottom of the screen shows you the name of the product and it's in English, so we need to translate it and to figure it out afterwards. It isn't only illegal or controlled chemicals the Navy teams are looking for. One of the biggest challenges in the fight against fentanyl is that some materials used to make it are dual use. They're also employed legitimately in the manufacture of other products, like pharmaceuticals. So in the port, there are stringent checks on paperwork. Are all the chemicals being imported actually on the manifest? The last large fentanyl-related seizure in Manzanillo was of 15 plastic tubs of a substance that's legal to use in the agrochemical industry, but in this case, they were hidden deep in another shipment. Sniffer dogs are a great boon in the port of Manzanillo in the find-and-destroy mission against all illegal drugs. She's on a very long leash. She's going right round the merchandise here. She's climbing on top. Very excited, tail wagging. Now, this is a dog that's happy in its work. She's passing them all by. Jumping on top. OK. Watching her teammate is Lara, a Belgian sheepdog, a gift from Mexico's northern neighbour, where the number of deaths from fentanyl has exploded. This canine came from the American embassy and it's already trained, but it's very dangerous searching for these kind of chemicals. And how, how often has Lara found fentanyl or the precursor chemicals for fentanyl? She found more pills and some of the precursors, but more pills. Fentanyl's often made into counterfeit painkiller tablets that look just like the real thing. And someone who takes one won't always know the main ingredient may render them unconscious in seconds. One pill can kill is an American drug enforcement agency's slogan about fentanyl. It can and it does. So this is the town hall of Manzanillo and there's one armed marine outside. Hola. Hola. Up a rickety wooden stairway, we're shown into the waiting room of Griselda Martinez. It's stuffed full of men with weapons. A short man in plain clothes, a pistol strapped to his waist, is in command today. OK, so Luis is just saying that there are three institutions that are in charge of guarding the mayor. There's the Navy, there's the National Guard, and there's the local police. Yeah, OK. The young Marine who was with the mayor when sicarios, hitmen on motorbikes, attempted to kill her in 2019, is on duty today too. Of the five people in the car that hot July night, he was the only one badly hurt. He was shot in the face and lost some teeth and part of his tongue, but he's healed well. He tells us how two motorbikes came from behind on one of Manzanillo's highways, a shooter riding pillion on each. 
36 bullets struck the mayor's car. Despite his injuries, the Marines shot back, but the assailants disappeared at speed. When we're shown into her office, I ask the mayor, Griselda Martinez, who she thinks wanted her dead. I don't know who it could have been, but at that time, I've taken action. I've reported the previous administration for misuse of public funds, and I've sacked many police officers because the municipal police were infiltrated by organized crime. And which organized crime groups are we talking about here? From both groups that operate in the municipality, the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel. The Jalisco New Generation cartel is a cocaine trafficker and controls laboratories making methamphetamine and fentanyl. The Sinaloa cartel is also known for moving cocaine and historically it's controlled the growing of marijuana and poppies to make heroin for export. But while that market's collapsing, the demand for synthetic drugs has boomed and the Sinaloa cartel always follows the money. It's the rivalry and violent splits among these groups that gave the state of Colima, where Manzanillo is located, the highest per capita murder rate in Mexico last year. Insecurity here has everything to do with the port. Manzanillo was a fishing village, very quiet. Everyone knew each other, and we slept with our windows and doors open because of the heat, until the port began to grow. Organized crime groups have fought for control of the port, but now it's not so simple for them because the Navy is in charge. That's helped a lot. So you think that the Navy taking over the port, that's made a difference? but it hasn't stopped the, the criminal groups getting the precursor chemicals out of the port to make fentanyl. It's very complicated, although at this point the Navy has more control over the port. But it isn't easy. Detection is difficult. However, now they're seizing far more drugs. We didn't see that before because of corruption. The town hall is not only where Griselda Martinez works. After the attempt to kill her, it's become her home, watched 24-7 by 15 armed guards. She's lived like this for more than four years. I ask her if she'll show us her private quarters. She says she can't do that. Last year, we had a second attack, someone shooting from outside, from the ramp. Or outside the city hall. We know we have to be very careful about saying where in the building I sleep. This is why we had to put these windows in. Okay, so these are windows that you can see out of, but you can't see in. So do you have to change your bedroom in the different in different places? I sleep in a small space. I have a small closet where I hang two or three outfits, and my husband comes every weekend to take those clothes and bring me clean ones. Sometimes he brings food that I prepare. And, and your husband? Can your husband stay here sometimes? No, <laughs> no. Este, eh, yo espero que resista, ¿no? Una esposa ausente. No, I hope he resists temptation. I'm an absent wife. Four years I've been an absent wife, but he supports me and he understands. So you haven't lived at home for four years? And it's worth it. Yes, we are scared. Fear is normal, but it's worth it because I have children and grandchildren and I don't want the Mexico we see today. I want it to change. Well, it's hard to say exactly what does happen to the precursor chemicals used to make fentanyl once they leave the port of Manzanillo in the state of Colima. There doesn't really seem to be evidence that fentanyl is actually made in the state, Uli. No, the evidence that we found is the fentanyl is not made in Colima. The evidence that we found is that the chemical precursors to make fentanyl is being taken to the northern state of Mexico, like uh, Sinaloa. Uh, Sonora and Baja California. So the fentanyl's not staying here. That could be good for the state of Colima. So far, nobody tells us about anyone that is using fentanyl in the state of Colima. 
but the story is very different in the north of Mexico. From Colima, we board an internal flight. Three hours later, we arrive in Tijuana, a messy, brash and brutal city built across hilly terrain and hugging the border with the United States. Tijuana is ground zero for fentanyl, for the trafficking of the drug north into California, but also for local use. We're in the northern part of Tijuana here. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people live rough around the Tijuana River Canal. It's a channel that cuts through the heart of the city. And the people here are often at the sharp end of the city's seemingly perpetual violence. And, of course, the fentanyl crisis. Somebody just injecting themselves over there. He's a short, muscly man. Some of his clothes hang off him in rags. And as we approach, he squats down on the pavement among his scattered belongings. This guy's got a small plastic bottle of water and an old bar of soap. He's just on the street, surrounded by rubbish. This is how you try and stay clean, right? Yeah. Not easy on the streets, is it? Yeah, it's pretty hard. He finishes scrubbing his hands with an old hairbrush, dries them on a T-shirt tucked into his belt and joins us. He says he's known as Smiley, and I tell him we want to know about fentanyl use in the city. It's rough, and it's like it's real strong, and it's killing everybody, all my friends. It's sad because it's only a one-time deal thing, you know? It takes lives away. With fentanyl on the street and not knowing how much you've got in your dose, how do you stay safe? I maintain it like in, in certain doses that I do daily because... I'm afraid that I might pass out or die or overdose, and if somebody doesn't know how to revive it, someone, that'll be it for me, you know? I mean, and have you seen people die on the streets here in Tijuana? Well, luckily for me, everybody that overdosed in front of me, I revived every single one of them, no one has ever died on me. How many people? Oh, I can't call it. So many, my God. I, I lost count, like around 20-something. No, 20-something? Yes. That's when I lost count. Smiley's used a life-saving medication on drug users that can temporarily reverse an opioid overdose and is usually squirted up the nose. Naloxone's widely available in the US, but in Mexico you need a prescription for it. However, some local NGOs in Tijuana source it and distribute it to people like Smiley living on the streets. He's using fentanyl every day. It costs 50 pesos, around $2.50 a dose, so he has to earn the money to buy it. I hustle wherever way I can. I help people do errands. I help people open up their businesses. And, and what's your story, Smiley? I imagine, because of your English, that, that you yeah, were brought raised, up on the other in, side of yeah, the border. I was raised in the States since I was like three years old. And I grew up and I got in trouble and then I got deported almost 19 years ago. And I've been over here ever since and it's rough. Oh, my God, you've been living like this for nearly 20 years? Yeah. On the streets here in Tijuana? Yes. Smile is 37 now, and he stayed in Tijuana so he can see his family who live across the border in California. He has a daughter, too. I see her every few months or whenever I get a chance. My parents bring her here so she can see me. And what's that like when you see her? I'm happy with my family, you know. But sad when they're gone and then I'm, I find out about myself here. And then what was this kind of fentanyl habit you have? What, what, what does the future look like? Like a tomb. Like a tomb? Yeah, like a tomb. Straight tomb that I'm heading directly. I know that, and I still don't stop, and I can't stop. And I want to, but I asked God with so many tears. I've done rivers of tears at night. I seen when God give me the power just to stop, but I can't. Tijuana's a city of the desperate. Addicts looking hunted pace the streets. Prostitutes in tiny miniskirts and short leather jackets totter in high heels, fully made up at nine in the morning. On the weekends, the city's bars, clubs and restaurants fill up with American tourists who cross the border to Mexico for a cheap night out. In and amongst the revellers and the people just trying to get by in this city of three million, are the courageous reporters of media outlet Punto Norte. Ines Garcia, one of Punto Norte's founders, 
is reporting live from the scene of the latest shooting in her city using her smartphone. I think that only in January we had over 200 homicides in Tijuana, and that's average. I mean, there are days where we have 17 homicides, and I think that in the past 15 years maybe, We've seen like more vicious ways for them to kill each other. Maybe at least once a week we have a homicide where people were dismembered. So why why are our bodies being dismembered? Do you think what they try to do is to spread like terror to people to fear them and to show them that they are vicious and that. They have like no soul and, you know, like, like they can, they can go as far as they want. Ruthless. Yeah. Completely ruthless. So like if a drug organization wants to take charge of a place, they start by killing the people that work for the rivals. So the violence you think is connected with the local drug market? From what I see every day, I think that most homicides are linked to selling drugs inside Tijuana. The violence that you're describing here in Tijuana, how has fentanyl impacted or changed that violence? In 2015, we had the entrance of the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, which was like a new cartel that appeared in all of Mexico. And then like the violence picked up like very quickly because they had to kill people that were working for other organizations here, trying to take like uh, control of the city. But a few years after that, we had the big fentanyl trafficking into the U.S. Fentanyl was going through Tijuana. It was like a matter of time for fentanyl to become a problem for Tijuana as well, you know. And suddenly fentanyl became a real problem. We had a lot of like overdose. We see a lot of seizures right now. The cartels with influence fight for the mean, bloody streets of Tijuana, especially for the local drug market. And each block or street here may be run by a different organised crime group. But apart from storing fentanyl in huge quantities to sell here on the streets or to smuggle across to the United States, fentanyl's also manufactured here early, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, last year, the municipal police... Uh, found three large labs in the east of the city. They found 36 kilos of fentanyl and the machinery to make the pills. And this was just in an, in an ordinary house. You wouldn't know from the street, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, they found four women living there, and behind of that, uh, they had the lab. And then there was an even bigger hall, I think, a bit earlier in the year. Yeah, in that one, they found 100,000 tablets of fentanyl, and again, all the machinery to make these drugs. So this is the thing about um, synthetic drugs, is that you can make it anywhere. Yeah, it's not like in the past with uh, poppy fields that you need to have land to grow the poppies and make heroin. It isn't only land the cartels have to control to produce heroin. It's people, whole communities. Fentanyl can be made for a hundredth of the cost with far less hassle. And because it's so potent, it's profitable even in small amounts and much easier to smuggle from Mexico into the United States. This call will be recorded and subject to monitoring at any time. Hello? Hi, is this April? Yes, it is. I contacted April Spring Kelly via her lawyer. She's in prison in the US after being convicted of trafficking nearly half a million fentanyl pills, plus other drugs, from Tijuana across the US border. Like too many Americans, April Spring Kelly became addicted to opioid painkillers. When prescription medications were regulated, she turned to heroin from Mexico. To fund her addiction, she moved to Tijuana and began smuggling fentanyl pills across the border. We wanted to learn more about how this illicit trade was organised, and she told us about the contact she used to pick up the drugs from in Tijuana. He did um, body repair on vehicles. He had had a shop, and then he started to do it from his home. It wasn't glamorous at all. It was just a, a one guy in his front, you know, little two-bedroom house, and that, that was it. 
or sometimes, you know, I would go down to Sinaloa and pick up pills also. So this is kind of 2018, as I understand it, and, and then people all were already dying of fentanyl overdoses in San Diego. Did you know anyone who, who died in San Diego at that time? Not at that time, no, but since this has happened, uh, I had a friend, his girlfriend passed away, and my children's father, he passed away, and I don't know if it was fentanyl-related or not, but I feel strongly that it possibly fentanyl-related. This call was from a federal prison. And do you know if anyone died after taking one of the fentanyl pills that you brought into the United States? Maybe there may have been. I remember the prosecutor saying that something like that had happened. There was a a 10-month-old that had that had passed away. A baby. Um, a baby. And it had come from one of the buys that I brought. April Spring Kelly is due for release in 2030. She's no longer a drug user and lives with immense regret related to her involvement with fentanyl. It's horrible, and I, and I hate that I, you know, play a part in it. At the San Isidro border crossing in Tijuana, we're played out by a plaintive solo musician. This is also where April Spring Kelly was caught. And it's where we leave Mexico for San Diego. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. I'm Linda Presley. This is Assignment on the BBC World Service. And a warning. Some of you might find the stories in this programme upsetting as we continue our exploration of a killer drug. When I became a fentanyl addict, I would hear about people dying, overdosing, and directly my mind goes to, well, where they get their drugs from? Because I want to use that same drug that killed them because it's going to get me that high. We'll call this young man David. He's in recovery from his addiction to fentanyl, an opioid once illicitly sourced from China, but now often made in makeshift laboratories in Mexico by drug cartels. Fentanyl's 50 times more potent than heroin and comes in pill or powder form. It's been associated with the deaths of celebrities like Prince. And what you have to understand about fentanyl is the way it messes with your brain. So in his addicted state, when David hears about people dying, he doesn't think, whoa, danger, stay away. He thinks, I want some of what they're having. Have you lost people to fentanyl? Friends, family? Oh, yeah. There's too many name, and even to this day, I'm losing people. When you're in that lifestyle and using those drugs, it's like playing Russian roulette. You never know when the next dose is going to take you out. David's clean now and determined to stay that way. He didn't become one of the statistics, one of the 107,000 Americans in the year to August 2022 who died of a drug overdose, two-thirds of them associated with a synthetic opioid like fentanyl. We meet David in San Diego, California. The county's been hard hit by the epidemic, as we find out when we visit the chief medical examiner. So what have you got here? These are doses of naloxone, an agent that's used to temporarily block the effects of fentanyl and other opioids. And why have you got these here in the medical examiner's office? They're for the safety of my staff. We make them available to our investigators that go to death scenes where they might encounter powdered fentanyl that uh, might become aerosolized that they could breathe. And I've just gotten in a new shipment. 
Dr Stephen Campman's staff have never accidentally overdosed whilst investigating the deaths of those who die suddenly, like people who overdose on fentanyl. The naloxone stayed in their pockets or bags. They've never had to use it. But in 2021, the last year for which reliable figures are available, the antidote to fentanyl wasn't to hand for 814 people in the county. They overdosed and breathed their last. Uh, in the last couple of years, there have been so many people that died like that that we, we couldn't keep up if we did autopsies for all of those people. In fact, for the last couple of years, if we did autopsies on all of the people that overdosed, then we would have to hire four new pathologists just to handle the overdose deaths. Wow. So that's the, your service being overwhelmed by this crisis? Correct. And, and why do people die so quickly? from fentanyl? I think they get too much too fast. The the drug uh, wasn't originally made to be taken like this. It was um, made to help induce anesthesia in surgery. And then later it was found, uh, good uses found for treating people with chronic pain or cancer to be administered in small doses over long periods of time. When people smoke it, they get way too much, way too fast. And so how, how fast would somebody die in, after taking, if they were going to overdose on fentanyl? We think it can be just minutes, that unconsciousness can be very rapid, um, and then death follows in just short minutes. So you've got some pictures here on your shelf. Yes. This picture is... A computerized picture of Clark taken from a photo. Jan Baker lives on a leafy street in Coronado, the pretty peninsula that sits across the bay from downtown San Diego. She's composed, serious, sandy coloured hair framing her pale face. And then this one is the very day that we moved from our old home, and we had been moving and packing all day. Okay, so this is Clark. He's tall, isn't he? Mm-hmm tall, lanky teenager Mm -hmm. with a shock of blonde hair. Mm -hmm. The details of that day when the family moved, May the 12th, 2021, will never leave Jan. It was our very first night in our new house, so there was boxes and everything. It was just crazy. Um, Clark went out and he bought 20 pills from this person. Like so many young people, Clark suffered during lockdown and he'd struggled with drug use. So he came home. We were unpacking boxes. He told me, good night, Mom, I love you. Um, so this had been a really exciting day for the family. All the family was together, and we were all celebrating the new home, and he was excited. Clark was helping. So we went to bed. He said, I loved you. That was the last words that he said to me. He took the pill, and I think that he probably passed away within one minute after taking it. And we believe it was around 12.31 a.m. in the morning. His computer was up, the laptop, and he passed away at his desk in his chair. And I woke up in the morning doing my normal routine, getting my coffee, just my normal activities, and getting my other children ready for school. And I decided to wake Clark up. And when I walked into his bedroom around 7.30, I found him. I knew immediately that he was gone. I remember throwing Clark on the floor, trying to resuscitate him, even though I know that he was gone. Clark was 15. He died of acute fentanyl intoxication. He hadn't intended to take this killer drug. He thought the pill was Percocet, a prescribed drug that contains the opioid oxycodone. Thousands have died because fentanyl has been mixed or cut with their drug of choice. Prescription drugs and heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, all have been laced with fentanyl. And how soon did you know that that Clark's death was fentanyl-related? I thought that he had just an overdose. I did not realise it was fentanyl. I thought it was just a simple overdose on Xanax. So probably I learned it within a couple of days. Xanax is a benzodiazepine, a prescription sedative. I knew Xanax and Percocets and Oxy and all of those types of things, but fentanyl wasn't under my radar. I didn't really know what it was. Now I know a lot about it because of 
wanting to learn more about it. Yeah, because I think I'm right in thinking that in California, in the United States, there is amongst teenagers a culture of taking pills, of taking what they think is prescription medication. Yes, they do have also some parties that are called, um, I think they're called Skittle parties, where they'll grab whatever they can in their parents' cabinet, whether it's a vitamin C or a Xanax or whatever, and they'll throw it all in the middle of the table, and kids will just take whatever one they take. Wow, Skittle parties. Yes, and you don't know what you're taking. Now, people listening to you, I think one of the things that carers and parents will be really shocked by is how social media is being used as a conduit to sell drugs to to kids. Mm -hmm. The kids are on TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. So it is very real and it's very scary. What we talked about in our case, how Clark actually went online, in Instagram in particular, arranged this fatal transaction. He went and obtained this pill from the drug dealer, Mr. Beltran Lapp, who was advertising online. This is Adam Gordon, the assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted the case against the man who sold Clark the fentanyl. When Clark was found dead, his laptop was still open on his Instagram page, where he and the dealer, 21-year-old Kayla Jr. Tawam Beltranlap, had been messaging. It was a boon for law enforcement. They set Beltranlap up for a further drug deal, pretending to be Clark. Hey bro, those perks were fire last night. Could I pick up some more today? Wrote one of the investigators to Beltranlap. Yeah bro, how many you want? Came the reply. Can I get like five off you this time? Yes, sir, bro. The police arranged to meet Beltran Lap in a public place. He was arrested. So the defendant's lawyer, I think, asked for a 10-year term for this young man. But you, the prosecution, you argued for a longer sentence of 13 years. What were the aggravating factors in the case of Clark's death? I think in particular for Mr. Beltran Lap, so he had two Snapchat accounts that were actually shut down because he was offering drugs for sale online. So for the government's view, that's an aggravating fact, because then he had to actually open up an Instagram account to advertise for these drugs that he was selling. And then, of course, there's Clark's age. Clark was a very young 15-year-old. He had braces. He did not look like an adult. And providing both drugs that are available online, plus selling to somebody who obviously looks like a child, in the government's view, is very aggravating. And how often are you you seeing cases of fentanyl bought and distributed through social media here? We have a significant number of those cases. And if I actually took out your phone or took out a phone from somebody from San Diego, within 10 or 15 minutes, I would locate and be able to purchase these drugs. Within 10 minutes? Within 10 minutes. And do we know where the pill that killed Clark, where it was made and came from? It would have been manufactured by a cartel in Mexico. Mexico, where fentanyl's made in secret labs using chemicals imported from Asia by organised crime groups and then exported north. More than half the fentanyl seized in the US is found crossing the California border. And San Isidro is the state's busiest port of entry. As many as 120,000 people enter the U.S. here every day. So fentanyl has been trafficked uh, through pedestrian and also through vehicles, right? Customs and Border Patrol officer Wilson Carrero is our guide. Uh, some of the things we've seen would be uh, uh, packages strapped to their waist, uh, book bags, things to that effect. So, so fentanyl is so potent in small amounts, bigger bang for your buck, if you will. And so the concealment methods are a lot more intricate and our officers uh, will spend more time using their skills of observation and, and just uh, experience to detect the stuff from coming in. standing here at one of the um, personal vehicle booths and the lines just go on and on forever and on the other side Tijuana Mexico so what are you looking for here I'm just making sure that she is compliant with what you are allowed to bring making sure she's not bringing anything illegal thank you have a good day we're interested in narcotics what are the telltale signs for you So you just look for inconsistencies in their stories and their crossings, like say they normally walk and now they're in a car, you're kind of like, well, you always walk. Why are you in a car all of a sudden? So here's the port director, Marissa Marine. Hello, nice to speak to you. Very nice to meet you. Hi. So we find you out here 
Are you inspecting vehicles yourself? I am not, no. <laughs> but important for me to get out and have some face time with the team and see what kind of challenges they face. And in terms of fentanyl, because that's what we're interested in, where is this on your list of priorities? So fentanyl is very high priority for us, right? Very important and dangerous narcotics threat that we see here at San Isidro. When we see over 100,000 travelers coming into the United States every single day. Through this port of entry? Through this port of entry. Busiest in the world. Almost needle in the haystack. Um, since 2008, we've seen over an 800% increase and the amount of fentanyl coming into the United States. But it's an impossible job for you, isn't it? Because you only need to get a tiny bit across. Yes, so it's very lucrative business for the drug smuggling organizations, and so a very small amount will provide very large profits. And, you know, they change and and evolve, and the smuggling organizations change their tactics on a daily basis. And they're clever. They're clever, and they have more resources than we do. We have to be more agile. They have an unlimited budget. And we have, you know, resource constraints. Wow. In this assessment, it would seem Mexico's formidable drug cartels are far better equipped to smuggle fentanyl than the federal government is to stop the trafficking. And the estimates of the amount seized at US ports of entry before it reaches the streets of American cities and communities are pretty low, no more than 10%. We really don't know how much fentanyl is really coming across. And the truth is, what we know is what we're able to seize. The unknown is the tough part and the challenging part. And, you know, we hope that we're increasing that percentage every day. And I think technology and intelligence will help us counter that. I was born and raised in San Diego, um, but, you know, family from Mexico and and had family in Tijuana growing up and grew up crossing this very border and, and very happy to be able to now dedicate myself to protecting both Tijuana and the United States. So this is something that's running in your veins? Oh, absolutely. I I lost three uncles at a very young age to narcotics overdoses, and so... Three uncles? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so the mission to protect the community from um, a narcotics threat is very near and dear to my heart. So we've just left the um, border, we're on the US side, come back to our car and there's somebody just off the main footpath behind a a, a metal locker and he's uh, lighting up a drug on tin foil. It's not even 50 metres from the border. It looks as though the man is smoking powdered fentanyl. He doesn't want to talk and lurches off to join a group of other dishevelled people outside a fast food restaurant. Clark, the 15-year-old, died because he didn't know the pill he took contained fentanyl. But increasingly, says the county's chief medical examiner, Dr Campman, it's becoming addicts' drug of choice. Early on, a decade ago, when we saw someone that died with fentanyl, it was someone that died when they had prescribed fentanyl and they misused it. So they had pain patches and they put two or three on at a time instead of one every other day. And then around 2016, we started seeing the numbers of dead increase. And we didn't know about counterfeit pills at that time. Uh, but it was pretty clear in, over the next couple of years, 2016, 17, and 18, that some of the fentanyl was made into the pill. And then in the last year or two, people are buying fentanyl, knowing that it's fentanyl, and it may be in a powder form. So they're looking for that high? Yes, Dr. Campman is worried, and so is the assistant U.S. attorney, Adam Gordon. Where the real challenges are going to be in the future is these individuals who are in the depths of their addiction choosing fentanyl as their drug of choice because a lot of these individuals have substance use disorder, they have dual diagnosis, meaning they also have some online mental health issue, plus sometimes even a trimorbidity, meaning some health issue. It's very difficult for me to have conceived of individuals who, knowing how dangerous fentanyl is, are still choosing to consume it. Plus, often they're unsheltered. If anyone needs haircuts, we're doing haircuts haircut, at the at haircuts, Smart right? and Final. We're doing them for 15th of Hey, hi, how are you? We're from the BBC. How come you're doing free haircuts? We, uh, we're part of a non-profit organization called Streets of Hope. Once a month we come, we do free haircuts. It's a service offered to some of the thousands who live on the streets of San Diego. You see people living rough everywhere in the city, their tents or tarpaulins secured against any available railing or tucked into a disused shop doorway. In parallel with the fentanyl crisis, homelessness is San Diego's other mammoth challenge, 
as it is in other Californian cities. So there's six barbers and hairdressers at work here, just on a street corner in San Diego. A lot of people getting smartened up. Is that feeling good? Oh, yeah. Good service, no? Yep. What's the name of your hairdresser? Uh, my name's Pamela. She's going to do your beard as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm actually just going to cut it all off, I think. You're going to cut it all off? Yeah, yep. A few minutes later, Pamela hands Dustin a mirror. Are you ready for the big reveal? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> A couple of streets away from the buzz of the barbers, we meet Abdullah, who removes his woolly hat to show us he doesn't need a haircut because he's bald. Abdullah's 63, warm and friendly, surrounded by the chaos of his bags of belongings piled up on the sidewalk. I ask him what he can tell us about fentanyl here in San Diego, and a whole drama unfolds. I've saved six people. Six people? Six people I've saved from overdose. I had to breathe for them, I had to or they pump their chest or whatever. So you've done CPR on people? Yes, yes, I know CPR pretty good, yeah. And have you seen people being given naloxone on the street? Yeah, I had to be given it a couple of times. You've had to be given it a couple of times? uh, Yeah, well, the first time I I did something stupid, uh, I was given some in... um, Fentanyl? Fentanyl. I almost died. My wife kept me in bed for about five days straight. She just died uh, about nine weeks ago. It had to do with fentanyl, too. Your wife died? Yeah, about nine weeks ago. So she took fentanyl then? She didn't do it normally. Oh, I'm really sorry. Yeah, life goes on. Yeah. I've overdosed four times on it. You've overdosed four times on yeah. fentanyl? Yeah. And did they give you Narcan then? I only had the Narcan once. No, twice. Two old ladies seen something was wrong with me, and they put Narcan up this now. That's the only thing to save me. Have you got it here amongst yeah, all your I bags? Have, yeah, I do. I definitely do. I can see one, I can see one in a minute. So, yeah. So um, Abdullah's just gone through all his carrier bags and he's found the Narcan. (laughs) So it's a nasal spray, it's in a plastic cover, four milligrams. Right. One spray, that's it, that's all it does, one spray. The fallout from fentanyl is incalculable. It's not just the bereaved, like Abdullah who's also struggling with drug addiction, or Jan Baker, Clark's mum. It's also the professionals who've been forced to respond to the crisis. I worked 486 deaths in four years. That's 486? Yeah. They were the different scenes you went to? Yes. Yeah, in four years. So that's a lot of scenes that you go to. That's a lot of bodies. This is Ed Byrne, a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations and an authority on fentanyl. You can go from a tent, like a shanty-type shack with just a couple of pieces of wood, or even a tent underneath some trees off the side of a freeway, to... $10 million homes in La Jolla. For four years from 2018, Ed Byrne's job in San Diego was to collect evidence from the places of death to identify dealers who'd sold the killer drug. Because remember, the dealer is not necessarily you're going after that person solely for the fact that they've sold something and this person has passed. It's because they're also out there most likely selling another bag and there may be another person. So you're trying to corral this in before another one gets sold that, that takes someone's life. Some of the death scenes he attended have stayed with him. There are ones that stick to you, right? But they're like freezes in time almost, like painting a portrait in your head. There'll be something unique about it, whether it's the sound of the way someone is wailing somewhere or it includes the smell, it includes the feel, it includes the sounds. Children are tough. They're horrible to see because it crushes just everyone that's there. It is a unique death, uh, I'll just tell you that. It's, it, you, you essentially crumble. Special Agent Byrne no longer works the San Diego fentanyl beat. He's employed elsewhere. And recently he looked at the photos taken of him just before he left San Diego and then three weeks into his new job. The pictures look like completely two different people and the job physically was... Uh, it was the first time I actually felt and saw it um, about myself later on where it had taken such a toll on me. Just, it was just physically draining, is what it was. Um, and emotionally, it's... Uh, I mean... <laughs> Ed Burns lost for words. But he's convinced the only way forward on fentanyl is to educate people about the risks. Mexico's cartels aren't suddenly going to stop making, exporting and selling this killer drug. So potential consumers must become more aware. 
And there's always hope, especially when young people step up. An hour north of San Diego, the small farming town of Fallbrook is known unofficially as the avocado capital of the world. But even here, off the interstate in a rural community, the tentacles of fentanyl have reached in and applied pressure. Fentanyl has been such a, such a traumatic, like, so many people are dying. It's taking a lot of our population, and a lot of the population are kids, teenagers, um, because they're trying to fit in or have fun. This is 16-year-old Jasmine Hernandez. Last year, after a fellow student overdosed on fentanyl and died, Jasmine founded an anti-drugs club at her high school with a group of friends. She's worried about the prevalent culture amongst her peers. For the most part, it's unfortunate to see that if you use drugs, like you're entitled to some sort of power. And that's where... So the, those are the cool kids? Yeah, you know, the jocks, the popular kids. They think it's cool, right? Since I know so many people because I'm really involved, like I hear all kinds of perspectives. The I got wasted last night, like I don't remember what happened last night. And the kids who are like, that's not cool, like that's disgusting. How do they like drugs? Like, don't they know what they're doing? So I hear all sides of the story. And have you been offered pills at parties? I've never been offered, like, pills. I'm a very stern person. You are. When I stand for something, they won't ask twice. They're scared to ask twice. I think it was last year, the first time they offered it. People know that I don't, like, I wouldn't take any substance. Jasmine's mother, Veronica, probably doesn't have to worry too much about her daughter. But she says the death of one of the high school students has made parents think hard about fentanyl. We got really scared, and it got to the point that I started to pressure the principal that we need to get parents trained with Narcan, and that's one of our goals for the school year, that parents, staff, and even students can come to that training, and I know at the end of the training you guys get the Narcan, and that's what we're doing right now. So this, shockingly, is what's happening in California and many other American communities. A demand for ready access to Narcan, or naloxone, medication that can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose. And it's even more relevant now in the era of the killer drug fentanyl. I actually I came out here um, to get sober. Remember David? I came out here to find recovery, and I came out here to get help. We meet him in San Diego, but he's not a Californian. Even as his addiction to fentanyl consumed him, he retained some self-knowledge. He knew he'd have to leave his own community to get clean. An NGO, Episcopal Community Services, is supporting him, and so far, it's working. It's actually, it's been amazing. Fortunately, I found somebody that was willing to reach out and bring me out here, and uh, yeah, from from then on, I, I didn't stop, I didn't look back. So you're maybe five months, six months sober now, are you? Um, I'm almost five months sober. All these people that are available to actually help me, it's it's a miracle to me because in my life and in my background, sometimes I didn't have those things coming from my own family, but to feel it come from strangers, it kind of hits a little bit harder and it made me realize that it's possible because there's hope. That's all from Assignment. I'm Linda Presley. The producers in Mexico were Ulysses Escamilla and Tim Mansell. And the programme was mixed by Rod Farker.